The National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. is filled with sculptures. Some marble, some of bronze, but all of them are prominent Americans. A new statue of an important Michigander will soon be joining the ranks, Coleman Young. I'm here to aid in any fight against un-American activities. I consider un-American activities those of the Klan, the denial of the right to vote of Negroes all over the South. A longtime Detroit civil rights and labor activist, Coleman Young won a close election to become the city's first black mayor in 1974. And I believe that if I could stimulate the black voters to come out and vote, uh, I could win. And get this, the Coleman Young statue will be the first ever black man represented in Statuary Hall. Not Michigan's first, the first from any state. That's a sign of not only Young's legacy, but also the system that's largely kept power out of black Americans' hands. Today, we're looking at how Coleman Young rose above the systemic racism of the 20th century to lead Detroit. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Let's start all the way back at the beginning. Coleman Young was born in 1918, last year of World War I. He was born in Alabama, and his family was part of the Great Migration, which was... When hundreds of thousands of African Americans began leaving the South, and they're going to, of course, places like Chicago and Cleveland and Cincinnati and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and, of course, New York, because, you know, this is the time period of the Harlem Renaissance. And, of course, Detroit. And so... Thousands of African-Americans will come to the city of Detroit, especially after 1914, when Henry Ford offers $5 a day to all workers. That's Jamon Jordan, historian for the city of Detroit. He probably knows Coleman Young's story as well as anyone around. And so the Young family, his father, William Coleman Young, and his mother, Ida Reese Young, moved to the city of Detroit in 1923. Coleman Young is five years old. The main area where most African-Americans end up when they come to the city of Detroit during this time period is the Lower East Side neighborhood known as Black Bottom. And the Young family will end up in Black Bottom as well. Right. What do we know about his childhood and, and his, I guess, his salad days as he was as he was educated in Detroit? So what's going on in the city of Detroit? Of course, because of segregation, the northern version of Jim Crow, African-Americans really go to particular schools that are in or near African-American neighborhoods, most prominently Black Bottom. And so Coleman Young will go to those schools. He attends three elementary schools in Black Bottom. Many people who lived in Black Bottom moved around a lot, but moved around within Black Bottom. That neighborhood today, of course, is um, Lafayette Park, Elmwood Park, a portion of, of, of Greektown, and a portion of the neighborhood known as Bricktown. So those downtown neighborhoods were this historically African-American neighborhood. And a lot of people moved around in Black Bottom. So his family did the same. Sidney Miller becomes the black high school and Eastern becomes overwhelmingly white. It was never 100 percent white, but it was overwhelmingly a white high school. Coleman Young will be one of the few students who will remain at Eastern High School and he would graduate from Eastern High School in 1935. So college was unfortunately out of reach due to some systemic issues uh, that many, many folks of the time will be familiar with. But, so he, he went straight uh, into the factories after high school, right? That's right. That's right. So he went to work at the Ford Rouge plant. And, but he would go through apprentice training to, so he could be an electrician because, of course, African-Americans were segregated in the plant. Most of them were working in the grinding and sanding operation, in the milling and in the foundries. And so he wanted to move up. 
And so he went through apprentice training so he could be an electrician. But because of racism, even in the plant, he was blocked from becoming an electrician for the plant. So he ended up working on the assembly line. It's so interesting how much of his story echoes the story of, of, of just about every other Detroiter of his generation. World War II starts and Coleman Young joins into military service. I think like a lot of other black Detroiters, he, he, his, his worldview was shaped by that. Can you talk about his, his military service time and, and how he sort of found a place where he could activate in civil rights there? So even before he's drafted into the army in 1942, he had already begun organizing in the plants, in the union. So he had already got fired for organizing in the plant, got fired at the U.S. post office for trying to organize a union. So by the time he's drafted in 1942 in the army, he's already had a little history of organizing. And so he ends up becoming a second lieutenant and joins the Army Air Corps as what we know as the Tuskegee Airmen. And he will organize the Freeman Field Mutiny in April of 1945 in, in Indiana. So the Freeman Field has officers clubs that are segregated. So the, the, the colored officers have to go to this club, of course, which has less amenities. And the white club officers have a different officers club where they eat and um, hang out with one another and they have their rest and recreation and of course it has more amenities and so he leads that protest and the protest basically was a group of african-american officers would attempt to go into the white officers club and they would and coleman young would be in that first group and they would get arrested and then after they get arrested then another wave of black officers would do it and get arrested and then another group would do the same so coleman young he was in that first group he was arrested and detained in quarters while the other groups followed him. And this was a major protest against segregation in the uh, military in the 19th, in the middle of World War II. Uh, but he will end, he will end his um, military career. He'll be discharged in 1945, but he will leave as a second lieutenant. After the war ended and he came back to Detroit, it looks like he went right back into, right back into labor and right back into labor organizing, right? That's right. Yeah. He gets elected to the CIO's council, the Congress of Industrial Unions. Of course, we know today AFL-CIO, American Federation of Labor, Labor, Congress of Industrial Unions are one organization. But um, he gets elected to the Wayne County's Council of Congress of Industrial Unions, the CIO. He would be the first African-American to hold that position. And when he gets that position, he's fusing civil rights with the labor movement. There have been other labor leaders who've been doing that as well. But Coleman Young is joining that group of labor leaders who are fusing workers' rights with civil rights. And so he would lead the group in protesting segregation in public places in Detroit, like the hotels, the schools, the restaurants, the bars, and of course, the sports arenas. Briggs Stadium, which we know as the Old Tiger Stadium, was not only the second to last major league team to bring in a black player, but the stadium didn't even allow black fans to sit in the box seats. And so Coleman Young is one of the people who's trying to organize the labor union to stand up against that. It was during this decade that Coleman Young is really making a name for himself around Detroit. But he's also getting unwanted attention from right wing members of Congress and from the FBI. Can you explain what was going on? Yes. Yeah, so the Progressive Party, the CIO, um, and then, of course, a group that he would be a part of forming, the National Negro Labor Council, which was formed in 1950, uh, in 51, they are all pegged by the federal government, particularly the FBI, as communist front organizations. 
Political leaders are branding this a communist front group, but so is the UAW, which is led by Walter P. Ruther. They also consider the NNLC, the National Negro Labor Council, as a communist front groups, and they begin trying to purge them all out of the UAW. In 1951, at their organizing convention, Coleman Young was elected the executive secretary of the National Negro um, Labor Council. And of course, that will bring him to the attention of the McCarthy Committee, the House Un-American Activities Committee. The committee held field hearings uh, in Detroit and during this period, and Coleman Young was on the hot seat. I want to play a little bit of audio from the hearing. This is, this is Coleman Young's uh, response broadcast by WJR. His response when he was asked directly if he was a communist. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? I refuse to answer that question because relying upon my rights under the Fifth Amendment and in recognition of the fact that an answer to such a question before such a committee would be, in my opinion, a violation of my rights under the First Amendment, which provides for freedom of speech as I understand it and for sanctity and privacy of political belief and association. And further, <laughs> since I have no purpose of being here as a stool pigeon, I am not prepared to give information on my associates or my political thoughts. Now, uh, you've told us that you were the executive secretary of the National Negro Congress. That word is Negro. Negro Congress. You said Negro. I think you're mistaken. Well, I hope you will speak more clearly. Well, I'll appreciate it if you will not argue with counsel. It's not my purpose to argue. The word, then, uh, As a Negro, I resent the slurring of the name of my race. In some well, sections of the country, you have a right to resent the word it, Negro is you note my race. I resent that. Jaman, he just, he just served it right back to the committee. Yeah, he defied them. He basically tried to put the committee on trial. He becomes a hero in the black community, especially in his neighborhood on the east side of Detroit, which is where he did much of his organizing. And so uh, even though it's hard for him to get a job now, he's a hero in the neighborhood. He's a hero in the African-American community. He didn't get involved in city politics explicitly until 1973. And I, I can't help but notice that was that was just a couple of years after 1967 and the summer of the uprising. Yes, in 1967, during the 1967 Detroit Rebellion, Senator Young was one of the, he was a state senator by this point because he had got elected to the Michigan State Senate in 1964. But Senator Young stood out as pointing directly at the Detroit Police Department and their brutality as being a part of the reason for the cause of the uprising and one of the major reasons for much of the carnage and death and, and injury to happen during those five days of uprising. And so that will also put him on a high pedestal in the African-American community, many of whom felt the same way about the Detroit Police Department and about what happened during the 1967 rebellion. We need to take a short break. When we come back... White saw him as anti-white. That's not the case. You can be a militant and still believe in racial unity, but many white leaders weren't used to that. That's in just a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from the University of Michigan's Go Blue Guarantee, committed to keeping a U of M undergraduate education within reach of all Michigan residents, regardless of socioeconomic status. 
Programs are available for all three campuses. More at gobluegarantee.umich.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. The mayoral election of of 1969 wasn't his year, but then 1973 comes along. Um, Tell us a little bit about what was happening in the city at the time. So um, after the uprising in 1967, really the Detroit Police Department got more restrictive. It would seem that after such a after five days of uprising and so many deaths and injuries and arrests that the police department would listen to some of the recommendations of the Kerner Commission report showing that um, white racism was really the cause of many of these uprisings and they would try to do things to ameliorate that. But that isn't what happened. The, the police department became more restrictive, more brutal. And in 1971, John Nichols, who was the police commissioner, instituted a program called Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets, or STRESS for short. And this undercover unit within a two and a half years had killed dozens of people. About 22 African-Americans had been killed and uh, about 48 African-Americans had been shot by members of STRESS. They even had shootouts with African-American police officers And they were considered like an an execution squad by many people in the African-American community. And so at the same time, black people have become about half of Detroit's population because white flight accelerated after the 1967 rebellion. When Coleman Young decides to run for mayor in 1973, one of the first things he puts on his agenda is the end of stress. And um, I mean, the pun is definitely intended. Um, (laughs) He's going to end this unit that has been causing so much carnage and so much brutality in the black community with this this unit known as stress. And so he gets a lot of support just for saying he's going to come out against stress. Yeah, this this is a race that pits him against John Nichols, uh, you know, a a man with a police background. That's right. And it, it was a very close election. Do we know much about what voting blocks helped push Coleman Young over the top? Yeah, it was very close. They both are trying to appeal to everybody. So neither Coleman Young nor Nichols are um, appealing only to one group of people. They don't even mention race. So none of them say Coleman Young doesn't really run a race campaign. Neither does John Nichols. But John Nichols is really running a law and order campaign. He's, he's trying to appeal to, of course, people who feel like crime and lawlessness is the problem in the city of Detroit. And Coleman Young is trying to appeal to people who feel that the police brutality and the neglect of city leaders and even state leaders to the city of Detroit is the problem. And that would include people like John Nichols. And so without saying race, they are talking about race because many people are seeing John Nichols as appealing to whites who feel that African-Americans are have, have brought so much crime to the city of Detroit. And of course, Coleman Young is seen as someone who is trying to let the voters know that the racism, particularly racism by the police department, can't continue and that he will end it once he becomes mayor of the city of Detroit. 
And he's elected the first African-American mayor in 1973. And you're right, it's a very slim margin. He won't ha ever have a margin that slim in any of his later elections. That election was a hard-fought one, but he'll win by l much larger margins than all the other elections. I'd like to play another quote from Coleman Young, and this is something that he said in his inaugural address that was very controversial at the time. And, you know, in some circles, it's still a topic of conversation to this day. Let's take a listen. To all dope pushers, to all rip-off artists, to all mothers, It's time to leave Detroit, hit eight mile road. And I don't give a damn if they're black or white, if they wear super fly suits or blue uniforms or silver badges. Hit the road. It may not be obvious why this raised any eyebrows in its time. Why did Coleman Young get people, why were people upset that he, some people upset that he would say something like this? So the first thing we need to understand about Coleman Young is that Coleman Young was a militant. He's seen as that and he really is that. He has been a progressive, he's been what we would call probably a radical activist for civil rights and workers' rights, fighting for the poor and working class people for decades. So that's the first thing. He is not speaking like a Martin Luther King Jr. He's not speaking where he's talking about racial reconciliation. He's speaking as a black man who believes that black people and white people ought to work together, but black people shouldn't take a back seat. They shouldn't turn the other cheek. They should stand up as men and women and be treated that way. Well, for many whites at that time, they see that as racism. Black people saying that they want to be up front. They want to stand up strong and they don't believe in turning the other cheek and they don't believe in forgiving their enemies. That kind of talk, which is the kind of talk that Coleman Young really kind of used. And he also used expletives. <laughs> he used curse words. A symphony which, of um, swears. <laughs> that's right. And so because of that, white saw him as anti-white. That's not the case. You can be a militant and still believe in racial unity, but many white leaders weren't used to that. Black men who stood up like that reminded them of people like Malcolm X or Marcus Garvey. And so they saw Coleman Young as anti-white. So first they had already pegged him as someone who was anti-white. So when he makes these statements, hit eight mile, which most people in Detroit know that means get out of town. Eight mile is just used as a synonym for the border of Detroit, get out of town. It didn't mean go to the suburbs and do your crime out there, or it definitely didn't mean white folks get out of the city of Detroit and hit eight mile. It didn't mean any of those things, but because many people already have this image of Coleman Young, to them, he's anti-white. And so when he says hit eight mile road, they take it personally. And so to this day, you will meet people. I have many times met people who either were already out of the city at that time or who moved shortly after that. And they interpret that statement as he was telling either criminals to go to the suburbs and plague them, or he was telling all whites to leave the city of Detroit, which is not what he said at all. Do you have any sense of how, how that remark was, was interpreted among black Detroiters? I mean, did they see that as him calling out 
whites who had left or were thinking about leaving saying, you got to stand with us. They definitely saw him as scolding people who had left the city of Detroit. But what many of them thought he was also asking was that he was going to be tough on crime too. But the difference between his tough on crime speech and the tough on crime speeches of many political leaders at that time was that he was saying that the police are a part of this crime problem, not the solution. For many African-Americans, the police department are just as much of a problem when it comes to crime in the city of Detroit as the gangs, as the robbers, as the thieves, as the ripoff artists, as the dope pushers, as the muggers. They're all bad, but police officers who beat people who are innocent and who shoot people who are unarmed, they're just as bad as those criminals. And so Coleman Young was adding police officers on the list of criminals that need to get out of the city of Detroit. There's a lot to say about the five terms that Coleman Young was in office. I guess I'd start us out by asking for your your lens on what happens when a labor organizer hits City Hall. How how do you see his approach being informed by his time in community organizing? Yeah, so it's in some cases it is very indicative. He is doing what you would think a progressive labor organizer, civil rights activist would do. And then in some cases it's a dichotomy. He's doing not what you would think a progressive organizer would do. So when he's elected, his executive order 1A is the removal of the police unit known as stress, which of course everybody expected and he did that immediately. When he's elected, about 9% of the Detroit Police Department is black. He leads the movement to vigorously integrate the Detroit Police Department and change it to a community policing model. By the time he left office, 50% of Detroit police officers were African-American, my mother being one of them. When he was elected, there were 2,323 complaints of police brutality by citizens in 1973. Within a decade, with far more African-American officers on the force, the complaints of police brutality had gone down from 2,323 to 825. Now, again, 825 isn't perfect, but compared to 2,323, it was a substantial change. When he was elected in 1973, Black-owned businesses had only received about $25,000 in city contracts. But by the time he left office, Black-owned businesses were receiving $125 million in city contracts. So that is a big difference. Grassroots organizers helped him get elected, but he would go on to assist other grassroots politicians to get elected to the city council, to the city and county clerk offices, the county commission, the school boards, the state legislature, and the United States Congress. However, although from his youth to his adulthood, he was a progressive leftist civil rights organizer, as mayor, he's a fiscal conservative. So he promotes large construction and development projects with major tax abatements like the Pole Town GM plant, while at the same time, he's cutting city employee staff, he's using massive layoffs, and he's laying off even police and fire to balance the city budget. That isn't something you would expect from a progressive grassroots union organizer. And so there is this dichotomy. It would not be easy for any elected official to hold on to office for that many years and be as effective in their last term as they were in their first. 
it's inevitable that your first picks for your 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 city cabinet and your department heads are gonna are going to come and go over that long a time. I mean, these these jobs are hard jobs. He he spent political capital dealing with budget issues. And at the same time, all during these years, the FBI, which had started a file on Coleman Young back during the McCarthy era, never really let up. He was never the police never found cause to charge him with corruption and graft, but he lost staff to some of those investigations. Jamon, do you have thoughts on why why Coleman Young decided to stay in office for so long? Why he why he wanted to maintain his role? Yeah, so um, like you said, there were six federal criminal investigations of Mayor Coleman Young, and as you also stated, he was never convicted, never charged, or even indicted for anything. One of the reasons that it really kind of becomes clear of why he stayed so long is so much stuff had been happening in the city of Detroit while he was mayor. In his first term, there had been a oil crisis. The uh, auto industry was falling. Of course, white flight was expanding in the city of Detroit. And so he felt he had to do something to save Detroit. That first term, he really wasn't able to do any of the programs and the plans he wanted to do. He really just had to put fires out and just try to hold the city together. And so it's really the second term where he begins to try to implement much of what he wanted to do. Um, And really what he thinks he's doing is he thinks he's saving the city. He believes that if he were to leave, the people who were running against him would basically give the city up to corporate interests and to regional suburban, which would read predominantly white interests. And he believed that by holding that position, he was keeping Detroit in the hands of black people and also in the hands of the black population, which had become the majority population by the mid-70s. In the 1980s, there was a major gang period. And of course, one of the charges or one of the allegations was, you know, there were allegations that he was saving them from arrest and that he had police officers uh, protecting them, particularly the Curry brothers and the Young Boys Incorporated. Um, That was never, of course, he was never indicted, never charged, never convicted of anything like that. So those were some of the things. Of course, the Devil's Night fires of the 1980s was considered a major failure of Coleman Young, that he was never able to get a handle on the massive hundreds of fires every year on Devil's Night, the, the day before, the day of, the, and the days around Halloween every year. Right. Um, that it just seemed like he was never able to shut that down. Um, of course, one of the reasons he wasn't able to shut it down because he had laid off so many firemen. Mm. And he had laid off so many police officers um, to try to keep the city afloat. So, um, But I would argue that Coleman Young did save the city. He saved it from bankruptcy, even though it was horrible to have all those layoffs and all of those um, shutting of city staff, removing of city staff. He saved it from rampant police corruption, especially brutality and killings by the police department. He saved it from white suburban domination of the city assets. Of course, he organized the funding to build what was then the largest museum devoted to African-American history in the nation, which is the Charles H. Wright Museum of African-American History. So despite the shortcomings, most African-Americans who were living in Detroit when Young was mayor consider him a hero, and so do I. You mentioned the fact that there were entire cohorts of people who got involved in public life during Coleman Young's tenure. What can we say about what he left behind in terms of an emerging class of leadership? 
Yeah, so it was definitely different than the prior class. So the black political elite in Detroit from the early 1900s until we get to about World War II were really a black middle class. They were predominantly black middle class. They were well-connected to really white power, to Ford, Henry Ford, and the other auto industries. Uh, the three found, founding black churches, the three first churches in the city of Detroit, Second Baptist Church, uh, Bethel AME, and St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, followed by Ebenezer AME and Tabernacle Baptist Church. They were all pro-auto industry churches, and particularly pro-Henry Ford churches. They were working with the auto industry, especially Henry Ford, to recruit African-Americans to get jobs at Ford Motor Company. He was a major donor to their interest, the NAACP, the Urban League. So these were this was the black political power in the city of Detroit prior to World War II. Well, after World War II, there were other institutions that were organizing. And one of those institutions is the uh, Hartford Avenue Baptist Church, which has a pastor, Reverend Charles Hill. And Reverend Charles Hill is supporting organizing unions, workers, Paul Robeson, A. Philip Randolph, W.E.B. Du Bois. So Coleman Young comes up through that wing. They're not the black elite. They're not the black middle class. And they're not recruiting for the big three. And they're not recruiting for the big three. They're recruiting people to fight the corporate leaders. And they, I mean, Coleman Young is fired from a job because he he takes a, a pole and hits his foreman as they're organizing a union at the plant. So he comes up to a different kind of organizing. That changes Detroit. And so now we get some grassroots folks who never probably would have attained any political position prior to World War II, African-Americans who never would have um, been able to become county clerks or uh, county commissioners or city council members or even assistants to city council members. They would never have been able to attain those positions because they weren't connected that way. But Coleman Young helps. He's not the only person. There's other people. Irma Henderson, who grows up in the same neighborhood as Coleman Young and becomes a city council uh, member. So there are other folks who are doing the same kinds of things, and they're bringing in a grassroots level of organizing. And Coleman Young is, comes out of that school, and he helps to change Detroit in that fashion. And so now today, there are people who we see in positions and become state, state senators, state legislators, U.S. Congress folks, and they come out of the grassroots in the city of Detroit. They do not come from the black political elite. We've been talking today with Jamon Jordan, official historian of the city of Detroit, about former five-term mayor, the late Coleman Young. Thank you for telling the story with, with us today. Thank you for having me. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producers, Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.